Comedy icon Margaret Cho and her podcast from Erios called The Margaret Cho brings you a weekly intimate conversation with an eclectic range of guests from stand-ups to drag queens to rock stars and activists. The conversations are organic, hilarious, and she never shies away from subjects like race, sexuality, or politics. You can listen to The Margaret Show wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, it is Tuesday, July 21st. You're listening to Q on CBC Radio. You're not listening to it on CBC Radio. I, I just said that because it's like Pavlovian. Like I just say... And I can wake up in the middle. And still to this day, I can say the following things. I can say, hi, I'm Tom Powery listening to Radio 2 Morning because that's my old show. I can say, this is Deep Roots on CBC Radio 2 because that's my old show. These are the things that, I can just, that will keep me up uh, in the middle of the night saying out loud. Let's get to what's on the show today. So Emma Donahue released a new book. She finished it two – it's a book about the 1918 uh, Spanish flu in Ireland in a hospital. And she finished it two weeks before the WHO declared COVID-19 a pandemic. Can you believe that? So we start off by saying, hey, should I buy a lottery ticket off you? But then she talks about why pandemics are interesting ways to look at society. And speaking of uh, looking at society through art, Ishmael Reed is here to talk about his problems with Hamilton, his problems with Lin-Manuel Miranda, and what happens when we as a society don't look at the truth behind the stories of the creation of America or the so-called, I guess, creation of America. All right. Show starts now. Welcome to the show. The author Emma Donahue has a new book out, and let me know if this sounds familiar. The novel is set in an Irish hospital during a pandemic. They're under-resourced and understaffed. Masks are encouraged, but some are skeptical. Any of this, any of this ringing a bell for you? Well, this novel, The Pull of the Stars, isn't about COVID-19. It's about the 1918 Spanish flu, but so much of it feels like it could be today's news. Emma Donahue joins us on the line live from London, Ontario, to talk about it. Hi, Emma. Hi, Tom. Before we get going, should I be getting lottery numbers off you or anything? <laughs> I, I have no, I have no luck in that respect. No, you know, I, I think people are just noticing the link because, um, you know, COVID happened. Um, I, I think probably somebody's written a pandemic novel every year or two um, for the last hundred years. I, I'm not the first to realize that a, a randomly, invisibly spreading disease would make good narrative um, fuel. You know, so no, I had no foreknowledge at all. And the funny thing is. Um, I wrote the novel in 2018 and 2019 and delivered the last draft this March. And then when, um, when COVID happened, only then did I notice any kind of echo. And when I was doing the copy editing process, I didn't stick in anything from today. I didn't change anything except one thing where in the novel I had said epidemic, thinking, oh, that's a more you know, familiar word. Pandemic sounds too exotic as medical jargon. But um, I did change a few of the epidemics to pandemics because it has so quickly become a totally familiar word. How did you feel then when you found out that it would be released during a real pandemic? I felt uh, spooked, um, a little bit freaked out because, you know, at, at a time of international crisis and so much real suffering, it seemed a bit weird to be, you know, um, promoting anything. But um, I, I did feel that if we waited, waited till the novel was meant to be published, which was next spring, people would be completely sick of pandemic stories by then. So it does make sense. And, you know, I, I'm loving the chance to pay tribute to healthcare workers with this novel. This novel is all about how grueling um, work uh, somehow brings out that amazing um, 
team spirit and energy and commitment in healthcare workers from, you know, from the surgeons right down to the hospital cleaners and orderlies. So, so I am quite glad to have a chance to do that. Well, let's talk about that in a second. But first, you know, the book follows a nurse in the maternity ward of a hospital in Dublin during the Spanish flu. What was it about this time, about this place, about this character that, that drew you in? I could have said the book anywhere. What fascinated me was the pandemic itself, because um, the the so-called Spanish flu, which it was just named that by the propaganda of other nations who didn't want it to sound like it was their flu. In fact, it seems to be a flu from Kansas. Um, it, it it hit young adults. I mean, I mean, people in their twenties and thirties. It hit people in their prime. Um, you know, the, the workers and parents on whom everything depended. So it was an exceptionally horrible illness, but also it was set in, it happened in, in modern times. So I felt that a novel about the great flu could potentially have an almost post-apocalyptic feel. It would, it would be about a modern, electrified, busy, mechanized society suddenly grinding to a halt because of the terror of random death. You, you asked um, real healthcare workers to edit this book, and uh, you mentioned that this book is in so many ways about the bravery, about the courage, and about the necessity of folks who work in, in healthcare. What can you tell me about getting them to look over this book? Why was that important to you? Well, it's funny. I always try and be realistic, but above all, with medical matters, I want to be realistic. Um, and particularly because of COVID, it's, it's, it seemed like it would be disrespectful not to be absolutely bang on about and um, not just the details of medical treatments and procedures, but the psychology of medics. So I, I found a midwife to, to read the book for me, who was in quarantine. And I already had a copy editor at Little Brown in New York, who is an emergency room physician, would you believe? And um, I had the benefit of her work on, on my novel, The Wonder as well, which is full of medical details about a starving girl. So um, there's nothing like having a real doctor say, Emma, you've got your details about blood pressure, just a little bit backwards, you know, because, you you know, no matter how much research I do, there are things I'm going to get wrong because I think those are the easy ones. I thought I understood the blood pressure bit, but no, but no. So many a blooper she saved me from. And she and the midwife both were, were wonderfully, um, they responded very strongly to bits in the novel where medical workers are just so worn out that they, there's a moment when my protagonist, Nurse Julia Power, she almost steps in a pothole and she thinks, oh, if I broke my leg, I'd get some time off. Mm. You know, they just, they cannot let themselves off the hook. I wonder if they were also sort of like blown away by how uh, medicine has evolved since then. I mean, you talk in, in this book about, you know, uh, this treatment's not working. We don't want to give for this person this much, uh, too much of this treatment. So we're going to give them whiskey, you know, and that was, that was, yes. a, you know, <laughs> you know, if right. the, the aspirin was proving too toxic because they gave it at such high doses. So they decided whiskey was generally safer. And um, yes, the, the midwife who helped me, uh, Maggie Walker, who works in Hamilton, um, she was just appalled by many of the, um, of the uh, ways of treating childbirth. You know, and um, there's a moment when um, a, a, a mother dies and the, the hospital staff are going, OK, should we try and get the baby out by cesarean? Well, we've got about 20 minutes. And Maggie's going, no, five, five minutes max. <laughs> so I think it was a stressful process for her and and um, my doctor copy editor. Yes. And um, it was really important to me to, to talk to a midwife because midwifery is this very interesting tradition. I mean, it's thoroughly medical now, you know. Um, I was lucky enough to have um, Ontario midwives to help me out during our births. But um, it, it's also this very um, long sort of outside of medicine tradition um, with sort of oral uh, oral traditions of, you know, ways of comforting and, and keeping up the spirits of a woman in childbirth. So I was really trying to tap into that sort of double tradition of ways of helping a woman through the most you know dangerous and grueling day of her life. You see, when I ask my doctor for whiskey, he always kicks me out of his office. 
<laughs> and the governments of the day were recommending onions in a big way. Eat a raw onion, they would recommend. And also things like, you know, keep up your spirit. Don't be defeatist. Um, the, the, the propaganda of the day was very strange. There was a lot of victim blaming. There was a lot of implication that if you got the flu, it's because you were being weak-minded and allowing the Kaiser to win. That's the kind of thing that they would imply in, in British or Irish notices. Presumably in Germany, they were telling you that you were allowing the King of England to win. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that. And I, I, I want to point out for people listening to this, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation no way endorses eating an onion to uh, combat COVID-19. Uh, you, when you talk about the Spanish flu in Ireland, you talk about how bread would have tasted that year, what people were using to disinfect services. You just mentioned you know, the idea of eating a, a raw onion to ward it away. Don't be defeatist by, uh, by getting sick. And one of my favorite passages describes how because of power outages, sometimes newspapers just had to run blank pages. Where did you find... That's such a surreal detail. Where did you find a story like that? You know, I do so much research. I did it so broadly too, because I knew that the flu was happening worldwide. So I didn't restrict myself to Ireland. I was reading, you know, government advice from Argentina and and, um, Brazil. And many of the worst death rates were in countries in Asia and Africa. So I I found details from all over. And in particular, there was one American um, detail I found in, in a book called American Pandemic, where a volunteer who actually died of the flu, and she volunteered for six days to help, and she died on the sixth day. And she said on her deathbed that this had been the best week of her life. And I took that really seriously, Tom. I thought, okay... Clearly a hideous and and upsetting and grueling week, and yet she felt so needed and necessary and important. I think for a lot of women healthcare workers, it was a time when they really got to step to the fore and say, you know, doctors can't cure this one. So it's all about the hands-on care and the little supports like propping patients up in bed to get a better better angle for breathing. If anything was going to get you through, it was the hands-on nursing. You know, again, the, the time is what we're talking about here, but I couldn't help but notice the place and the time, you know, it's an interesting time period to be talking about in terms of your home country, in terms of Ireland, because Spanish flu or not, 1918 is after the Easter uprising in Dublin, but before Irish independence. It's a period I don't think gets covered too much, the sort of like few years in between. Tell me a little bit about what crossed your mind writing about that time. Yeah, that's one reason I said it in Ireland. It's, it's partly because I wanted, um, you know, the voice of the nurse to be totally authentic. And also I knew I would be criticizing the society I was setting the book in because, you know, pandemics are x-rays to reveal injustice, aren't they? Mm. That's become very clear with COVID. Um, and you should always, you know, uh, be attacking your own culture, I feel, <laughs> rather than somebody else's. So, um, but an, an additional benefit to me was that Ireland was going through such political change in those years. And I think a lot of people like Julia Power would have been only dimly aware of the revolutionary movement. And, you know, it, it took most people by surprise when suddenly guns were going off in the middle of town. Um, and yet a few years later, a lot of those same people were voting in Sinn Féin. So I, I wanted to choose somebody who thinks she's got no time for politics, who's trying to focus on her incredibly demanding job in a single-minded way. And yet in looking at her patients who are from the Dublin slums and are so weakened and broken by, by poverty before they even get this virus, she starts to put the pieces together and to realize that health and illness are political. You know, that there's a connection between one of her patients coming in with a permanently swollen leg from her last childbirth, because Ireland, you know, traditionally has had this relentlessly pro-natalist culture of just really pumping the babies out of the women. Um, So Julia starts to put it all together and to see that there is a link between this and politics um, and that in a way we all decide who's likely to die in in pandemics because we we consign them to areas of bad food, bad water, lack of healthcare, bad air, long before the disease comes along. We can't really blame the virus entirely. 
I wonder if what a virus says about our society, what a virus says about our politics, is the reason you and so many authors have have written about viral outbreaks. I mean, you look at like even frog music. There was smallpox in that your twenty fourteen novel. I mean, what is that? What um gets you interested in looking at viral outbreaks because it's a, it's a way of analyzing society. Yeah, they are poli- they are political and they are ethical as well because. Suddenly, it's not just healthcare workers who have to decide, will I walk into that room where, you know, a patient is going to literally cough bodily fluids all over me. Um, But also ordinary people not in a hospital are looking at each other funny thinking, is there a risk to a hug? Will I do this person more of a kindness by not visiting them than by visiting them? And, you know, we've had very painful discussions about things like long-term care homes and the the relative cruelty of isolation as opposed to um, contagion. So um, basically, pandemics uh, turn everyday life into a series of ethical dilemmas. And it's hard to think of a time um, when there's been quite as much soul searching about our human relationships and our our social arrangements um, and and the meaning of of, um, the meaning of wearing a mask, say. Um, I'm afraid in 1918, they used the masks quite um, arsewise, as we'd say in Ireland, (laughs) in that they wore them outside. And then as soon as they went into the crowded pub, they'd take them off. Oh, great! That makes, have the hang of the thing. Yeah, that makes that makes that makes. But there was a lot sense. of emphasis on kissing and how you should kiss safely through a handkerchief, and that doesn't sound appealing to me. But on the other hand, I'm impressed that they were so concerned that they really wanted to kiss each other that much that there was a whole policy for it. You know, earlier you said the word contagion, and it made me think about just the the appetite for pandemic ish literature or pandemic ish fiction during this time. You know, you look at that film Contagion that, you know, became the number one film streamed on Netflix. And, you know, you look at the anticipation and the and the eagerness for your book right now. Why do you think readers, I mean, given that we're um, surrounded by the stress of this outbreak, by the stress of this pandemic, are seeking out stories about these moments? Well, I know myself when I've had fears it's very comforting to me in my writing to address these head on, you know, the, you know, what if I had to risk my child's life to save them that turned into room, for instance. So I think um, sometimes looking directly at what terrifies you is more comforting than just looking away from it. So in, in, in bad times, you get, for instance, in the Great Depression in the 1930s, you get um, pure escapist fluff and dance routines, but then you get a lot of sort of gritty Steinbeckian literature as well. So um, I know that when, the, when, the, when COVID broke out, um, I was plunging into Hilary Mantel's The Mirror and the Light, which is set in a very you know, permanently plague-ridden um, 16th century London. So um, I think there's a there's an odd kind of consolation to realizing that the human race has been through horrors like this and worse. And in fact, in many ways today, we are far better equipped. Um, information, good information can spread just as fast as bad. And um, science is in a much better state and medicine is in a much better state. In 1918, they were just working in the dark. They didn't even know what a virus was. So they were, you know, literally peering through microscopes, trying to find the bacterium responsible and couldn't find it. So um, they were blundering along and um, it was an absolute horror of a time. It's been estimated to have killed um, between three and 6% of the human race. So, you know, it has really taken the edge off my COVID fear Mm. to focus on 1918. I'm speaking to Emma Donoghue, um, the award-winning author of Room and the Wonder. We're talking about um, her new book. And I I just want to be clear here for people who made up to this point think that this is simply a pandemic novel. Uh, but it's 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 more than that. It also focuses on the stories of women and, and female love and friendship coming up a lot during your novels. You know, where does that come from for you? 
Well, one reason is that uh, the, the fact that hooked me when I read about um, the, the great flu of 1918 was that um, something I hadn't heard before. It hit pregnant women particularly hard. Women in late pregnancy caught it more and it tended to bring on premature births or stillbirths. Um, and they often died directly after the birth as well. So it turned a dangerous business birth into an even more dangerous one. And I thought that was a wonderful combination of two different medical dramas. And I started wondering, where did they put these women? Because you could hardly put a laboring woman in a flu ward or a, an infectious woman in a labor ward. So I imagined this tiny little three bed, really cupboard and um, converted storeroom um, where women who were pregnant and had the flu would be put. And um, I realized immediately this would make it a very woman-centered novel. And because most novels we've read set in World War I are necessarily focused on those gallant men in the trenches. You know, I've read beautiful novels like, say, Sebastian Fox's Bird Song, really set in that man's world. Um, by contrast, I thought this one would, would, would set up a sort of equivalent microcosmic world of women giving birth and women helping them. So, um, yes, it's, it's, it's a very woman-focused book. And it, there's an argument at one point, um, Julia is being baited by an orderly who says to her, you know, you women don't deserve the vote because you don't pay the blood tax. You know, you don't go to war. And she gestures around at this stifling little room and she's like, these women pay the blood tax every day. You know, this is where the nation begins. So I really wanted to, to, to put birth in the spotlight and to emphasize that it's not some bland or, or, you know, pink, cozy, be-ribboned business. It's, it's blood and guts and heroism of the highest order. Before I let you go, I want to talk about an open letter that you signed this month from a collective of Canadian artists and writers and performers. And what you're looking for, or what you're talking or calling for, is a national basic income. You know, many people working in the arts right now are precariously employed. There's no shortage of, of friends of ours who are struggling right now as tours were cancelled or films were cancelled or books were cancelled. You know, how would a basic income help? Well, it wouldn't just be for um, people in the arts, by the way. We're the ones asking for it on this occasion, but it would be for everyone. I think we've we've seen with um, with Serb, for instance, that you know it, that the government can make these you know big big moves when it needs to. And I think there's a lot to be said for disconnecting basic survival income from work uh, in a way that would be to the benefit of both. Um, it's funny, somebody on Facebook the other day was saying, oh, if, if artists and writers and, and you know, um, musicians are unemployed, they should just go out and get other work. And I thought, well, yes, they could. But, you know, that means in five years you won't have the novel, the symphony, the pop song that you are now absolutely relying on in quarantine. I mean, people have been so sustained by the arts through this period. And they don't seem to realize that you have to sustain artists too. You know, you can, you, can, you can lose talents if you fail to cultivate them or if you make people work at other things. So I think there's a lot to be said for a basic income. And artists are just one example of a group that could really benefit from this. And what a time to, to start thinking about these things too. You know, I mean, as, as you mentioned, the, these, these moments of great change happen around 1918. I, I wonder what it is about this time in COVID-19 that we could start thinking about things like a basic income. Well, whenever we're hit by something enormous, um, you realize in historical retrospect, it actually provides a wonderful opportunity for a, a hard reset. Um, it's, it's been amazing how many um, big questions have come up. I mean, for instance, we wouldn't have predicted that Black Lives Matter as a phenomenon would suddenly um, get so much attention worldwide. But I think it's happened as a direct result of COVID because we've all in a way had a moment's pause to think. And so things like, you know, killings by police, which frankly have been happening for, for decades, um, it's as if we suddenly noticed. Um, it gave us it gave us a chance to to notice issues of injustice in in other fields. So um, 
it's it's an oddly exciting time to be alive, isn't it, Tom? It certainly is. You know, uh, it's, it's it's certainly a strange time to be alive. But in many ways, you're right. I'm sort of I'm sort of grateful for it. Um, Emma, th- nice to talk to you. You too. You too. Let's do this every six months. Well, we kind of do, don't we? I mean, I talked to you six months ago about your last book. I mean, I feel like I feel like every six months I have an appointment to talk to. And I really loved your book. And I, I got to read it, uh, as I mentioned to you before, I read it while walking. The first book I've ever read while walking. That's superb. I wrote much of it by walking on my treadmill desk. So um, I love the idea of this sort of continuous loop. It's like a conversation, you know. <laughs> I suppose so. Emma, love to talk to you. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Emma Donahue is the award-winning author of Room, and her latest book is called The Pull of the Stars. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Here are some stories we're looking at for you today. I sounded like purred happily from Parks and Rec. You ever watched that show? Um, Here's some stories. We're looking at for you today. Some exciting news from the Prism Prize organization. The Prism Prize is a national juried award for music videos in Canada. And the best Canadian music video will be named in a virtual ceremony this Thursday night at 8 p.m. Eastern. But the winner of the inaugural Willie Dunn Award will be announced right now. Exclusively on cue, the Willie Dunn Award recognizes trailblazers in the music video industry. But the cool part about this award is that the winner gets to choose an up-and-coming Canadian in the music video field to receive a $5,000 grant. So, are we ready for this? The winner of this year's Willie Dunn Award... I feel like we should do something special. Sam, can you pull the music down just for a second? The winner of this year's Willie Dunn Award goes to... Lorianne Gibson. Lorianne Gibson. Congratulations, Lorianne. Lorianne is a creative director and choreographer with more than 25 years of experience in the industry. She's worked with huge names like Katy Perry and Lady Gaga and P. Diddy and Beyonce and Nicki Minaj, even Michael Jackson. She's one of the most sought-after choreographers in the music industry. So stay tuned to Q this Thursday for a full interview with Lorianne about what it's like directing some of the biggest artists of the last 20 years and how she chose to pay it forward. Sound Off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. David Tennant does a podcast with from something else is back for another season. David sits down virtually with the biggest names in entertainment, including Dame Judi Dench, Jim Parsons, Elizabeth Moss, and more. You'll get an inside look at these stars' lives with revealing conversations, surprising stories, and of course, lots of laughs. New episodes of David Tennant Does a Podcast With, available every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Tom Power. Ishmael Reed is on a mission to disturb and disrupt North American culture, and no one does it quite like him. He's a poet, an author, 
and a teacher. He uses his work to speak truth about things in the zeitgeist. Sometimes it's taken the forms of novels like Mumbo Jumbo and Juice. Sometimes it's poetry collections like Conjure, the one that got him a Pulitzer Prize nomination. But Ishmael Reed is one of the most astute cultural critics of our time. And here's the example we're going to talk about today. The blockbuster musical Hamilton by Lin-Manuel Miranda is pretty much the biggest thing in our pop culture in some ways. But Ishmael felt the story was whitewashed and that it left out a lot of important voices. So in 2018, he created a response play called The Haunting of Lin-Manuel Miranda, featuring the ghosts of the people who got left out of Hamilton, like Harriet Tubman, even the ghost of Alexander Hamilton himself. And people took notice of what Ishmael was doing, like the late writer Toni Morrison, who helped him fund the show. Hamilton just came out on Disney+, Plus, so we thought it was a good time to catch up with Ishmael and his feelings on Hamilton. Here's our conversation. Hamilton made its debut on Disney+, Plus, so a lot more people who probably weren't able to have the the dough or weren't able to get to New York to see the show uh, are now able to see it. And, you know, criticisms of the, of the play certainly aren't new, but it, there certainly seems to be an intensity in those criticisms now that feels different. W- what do you make of that? Well, I don't think people are comfortable with uh, slaveholders being honored on Broadway, on the stage. And I think uh, New York is probably a great place for them to create that because black lives have never really mattered uh, in uh, New York uh, from the 1700s on, uh, on there have been massacres. There blacks been burned alive there and lynched, lynched in Washington Square Park. It's not just a place where folk uh, musicians gather. It has a horrible history. And uh, most recently, under Stop and Frisk, the majority of whites endorsed uh, Stop and Frisk, this measure that was uh, used to, uh, you know, uh, stop uh, black and Latino uh, men. Uh, without cause on the streets. Finally, a brave judge overturned it, and she caught hell, uh, Judge Henlon, who held it uh, to be unconstitutional. So I think that New York is probably the best place for them to have premiered uh, Hamilton. I think that was a stroke of genius. Does, does, it feel like, does it feel like criticisms of the show are starting to pick up? Well, I think, you know, they have a, they have a big... Uh, what you're up against, uh, Tom, here is that... Uh, there's a big payroll in the show, and I could tell that some of the reviews are favorable to uh, Hamilton and denounced our play. We got terrible criticism in the beginning uh, based upon the revenue, the ad revenue that uh, Hamilton's brought in. Uh, it's very slim pickings for ad revenue because of the virus. And so, uh, you know, a show with that big pay, which, which is like a billion-dollar show, is able to uh, sort of like finance the critics, sort of like a form of – Payola, and so uh, the, the new line—they've changed the uh, sales pitch. First, they said he was an abolitionist, and we made them back up from that. And then they said he was opposed to slavery. Well, we cited the fact that uh, when the Haitians revolted in the 1700s in Haiti, uh, both Jefferson and Hamilton were on the side of the uh, slaveholders. Now they're saying, uh, Miranda's saying that. Well, he couldn't get everything on stage, uh, uh, sort of like implying that he did, uh, you know, uh, write about uh, Hamilton and his co- uh, cohorts being slaveholders, but they cut it or something. I mean, he's, I mean, it's just like chaos, the sales pitch now. And what they did was they had uh, Annette Gordon-Reed from, I think she's from Harvard, and a Joanne Freeman from Yale, 
who are now defending the play. And as a matter of fact, uh, Annette Gordon-Reed in the Los Angeles Times, where they talked about our play, uh, picked on the, picked up on the sales pitch that uh, you couldn't get everything in it. Uh, but nobody mentions that they're on the payroll. Both of those historians are on the payroll of Hamilton. Let's talk a little bit more about your play, The Haunting of Lin-Manuel Miranda. Oh, sure. um, mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it revolved around a fictitious sort of Lin-Manuel Miranda and his conversations with the ghosts of the people he had left out of his retelling of Alexander Hamilton's story. Why did, why did you choose that approach, almost like a satire? Well, it, you know, it has satirical moments, but there's a lot of information. As a matter of fact, uh, to ridicule play, one of the reviewers called it a lecture. <laughs> <laughs> I plead guilty, but I mean, I, you know, there, there are characters in the play. They represent Native Americans, and you know, the Native Americans are don't really count in the discussion of uh, the musical. Uh, Hamilton, I believe that. Uh, as a matter of fact, I found a letter of his, I think, written in 1791, in which he congratulates a vigilante mob for going into a Native American settlement and demolishing men, women, and children. So that's a a Hamilton letter. And to refute the fact that, uh, you know, they say, well, he didn't own slaves. I mean, he he might have sold them. That's the compromise. He might have sold them on behalf of the Schuyler family. But his grandson, Alan Hamilton, says uh, that he left receipts uh, indicating that he had owned slaves and uh, that uh, the idea that he never owned slaves was wrong. This is... uh, his grandson who wrote that, the intimate, uh, the intimate Alexander Hamilton. I think that's the name of the book. So uh, they have they run out of arguments. What is faked out, everybody, is the dance, uh, is the dancing, you know, and you might add, you know, the singing. It's a very. I saw the show, and uh, you know, it's it's a you know wonderful looking people on stage and a lot of beautiful costumes and such. So I think that's what faked everybody out. You've been, you've been, well, in a lot of the reviews of your show, it's clear that you're critical less of Lin-Manuel Miranda as a playwright and you're critical more of his approach to the musical Hamilton. How do you respond to that? Well, I think, I think he, he relied upon uh, Ron Chernow. Ron Chernow is the historian who wrote the book that Hamilton is based on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so, so there's a, there's an upheaval in the historic uh, historical establishment of the United States, uh, you have a younger people. As a matter of fact, the, the first people uh, to point out the flaws in Hamilton were women. Uh, Nancy Eisenberg, Lyra Montero, uh, Michelle DuRoss, uh, they all were the first to talk about Hamilton, but it was, their, their views were, you know, out of, were published in out-of-way publications and online. It was uh, our play that brought their dissent into the mainstream. Uh, so what's happening is that the younger historians, Latinx, black, uh, you know, women, uh, others are challenging the old guard whose job was to, uh, you know, write these bestsellers that sort of like glorify, uh, you know, slave slave owners and those who believe that Native Americans should be exterminated. What, what do you make of the fact that, um, you know, even uh, U.S. President Barack Obama has said that, you know, famously said that Hamilton is the only thing that he and Dick Cheney have in common in their fandom of the play. I mean, it's talked about as a play that seems to be able to transcend race and, and transcend class and politics. What do you make of that? Well, I think the problem with uh, Barack Obama is that he was educated at Harvard. And I don't even have to look at that curriculum to see that <laughs> it's probably... 
it probably, you know, depicts, uh, just goes along with all the myths about the founding fathers. So, so you think that o- just, Obama might not have been, uh, might not know these things about Hamilton? Well, the, the, the American curriculum is a white power curriculum. I mean, you know, the view, that's what I tried to do in the play. The views of uh, Native Americans, Latinx, and other uh, pe- women and others are left out. You know, it's it's one that glorifies, uh, you know, the great uh, great men. My students are very shocked when I show them. Uh, they're shocked when I show them uh, the uh, the uh, the ceiling of the the Capitol where they have George Washington ascending into heaven like a god, surrounded by angels, and it's called the apotheosis of uh, Washington, where he's treated treated like a uh, god. As a matter of fact, uh, the the painter who did this was influenced by Michelangelo's, uh, you know. Uh, depictions in the in the Vatican, so uh, the, so they become godlike. As a matter of fact, I went to uh, Hamilton's tomb. Mm. Angelica's buried there, and they, and it's it's treated as a shrine now because of this musical. People are making wishes there, and uh, you know, I tried to take a photo, and a tourist told me not to step too close. So this musical's done a lot of damage. Do, do you see? Do you see a way that he could he could make amends for this? Like, do you see you know a, a way that he could amend the play, or is the only solution for you to for him to shut this thing down? Well, I would want to see it shut down. I would like to see alternatives. I would like to see some of uh, there are a lot you know there are a lot of black and uh, Latinx and uh, women uh, historians and who've written plays. But they don't have a chance of being mounted. I think uh, you know you go to Broadway. You have to to cater to the investors. So he's making many, many times the amount of money that the actors were really carrying this thing. If you're just tuning in, this is Q. I'm Tom Power. I'm speaking with legendary poet, writer, playwright, and teacher Ishmael Reed. Um, in, I, I saw someone ask you, you know, why would you make this criticism of, of Alexander Hamilton? And you, I love what you said. You said, well, because I'm an iconoclast. You need people like me. <laughs> is it something? You, is it something you decided right from the get go? Like I'm just that this is going to be my life's mission. Well, you know, I, I, I think I think it, I think it began when I was 17 uh, in high school, and I went to uh, I was sent to Paris as part of a YMCA delegation, and the Africans there. Were not uh, did not seem like the the stereotypes of Africans I'd seen in the movies and textbooks, because um, I my residence uh, while living there was at the Sorbonne, and I met a, African students, and I was really disillusioned. So when I came back uh, to the United States, I dropped out of high school. I felt there was nothing they could teach me. What what else would they be lying about? So it might have begun there. That's 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 fascinating. It's fascinating how these like early experiences can inform the rest of the work of oh, the rest absolutely. of your life. You absolutely, know? yes. Um, earlier, I mentioned there was this moment as feeling like like a bit of a. Well, actually, let me ask this first. Do you feel like outside of the like the, the professors who we wouldn't necessarily who names we wouldn't necessarily know and the writers who names we wouldn't necessarily know, are there any public black artists or public figures you, you think are are carrying that sort of iconoclastic torch in twenty twenty? Oh, there's so many. Uh, they just don't get publicized. Uh, what we get in the in the media are what I call like Baldwin impersonators. Uh, you know, so like you have Elvis impersonators in uh, Las Vegas. Well, they're all these people who are trying to imitate Baldwin, which is to appeal to the conscience of the majority, uh, without realizing that uh, by the time Baldwin had written, uh, "Tell me how long the train's been gone," he was disillusioned with trying to redeem people and was very bitter. 
about the status of blacks in the United States and lived most of the time in Turkey and in and, and, uh, Paris. And uh, in that novel, he says that uh, one of the places that he felt comfortable was in a Chinese restaurant in San Francisco. He'd become completely disillusioned in the United States. So they, they leave that part out. They go to the fire next time, which uh, in which he promises to redeem uh, liberals. So that's the same kind of thing you got now. People who come on these shows, and they're restricted in what they could say. For example, uh, there was a, a pundit for uh, MSNBC. She said she couldn't say all the things she wanted to say on MSNBC. And Don Lemon, who's a very pop, one of the few people, black people, with a, who's an anchor, has a show at night. He said that if he said what he really wanted, what was really on his mind, he couldn't pay the mortgage. So they're restricted on what they can say on these, in these networks. So what we have, we have theater and we have uh, literature. We just don't have the billions of dollars to equipment to uh, to uh, you know get our, our views known. Earlier, I mentioned this moment is feeling like a bit of a global reckoning with institutional racism and, and white supremacy. What's what's your prediction for how this all might look in a in a year or so? Well, you you might you might say it's cosmetic. You know, I mean, uh, you might uh, tear down a Confederate statue or uh, you know make some reforms at the universities and other places, but. Uh, I'm living a few blocks from homeless encampments where people are uh, starving. People don't have, you know, people don't have any, the uh, proper medical attention. And there are going to be more, you know, thousands more uh, who are going to be evicted from their apartments and homes for not paying the rent or the mortgage. And so this is a real disaster. And if I'm cynical, I could say that this is part of a extermination plan. Uh, and we should have uh, gotten a uh, hint of that when uh, when the, the administration allowed all those people to die in Puerto Rico. Thousands of people died because of neglect uh, by this president who d- didn't even realize that Puerto Rico was a state. Matter of fact, he thinks that Venezuela is part of the United States. So uh, there's, a, there's a plan. Uh, not, well, I wouldn't call it a plan, but I mean, there's some really dangerous thinking behind the policies. Uh, of this administration. So I think it, it's probably going to get worse and you might get some cosmetic reforms, but uh, it's not going to, tr- say, using that term, trickle down to, uh, you know, the grassroots masses of people. They're really up against it, and not only in in, in, uh, in the streets, but in prisons where the virus is breaking out. Thousands of prisoners are. And there doesn't seem to be any uh, interest in uh, alleviating the situation. You have Hundreds of people in cages uh, at the border, children, and the virus is spreading there. So I think there's a uh, idea that you know uh, this is one way to get rid of the <laughs> undesirable population. I mean, it's interesting because it's 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 a time that I have heard folks who. Um, have never talked about the idea of of hopefulness, and you know, in particular, Ta-Nehisi Coates, who you know famously refused to ever to answer a question about hope, saying, you know, the, the the church is here to give you hope. I'm not here to give you hope. He feels hope. You know, I'm not arguing with you. I want to be clear about that. Um, but, but it's interesting to me that you you you're, you're you're feeling the way that you are. No, these guys are proxies. I mean, he's he's a good writer, but uh, you know, you know, the problem, Tom, is that the the, the collapse of the black press. Uh, deprived blacks of a alternative uh, voice that could reach uh, uh, reach uh, uh, hundreds of uh, thousands of black Americans. Black press was powerful, but during the 60s, uh, some of the black nationalist organizations demanded that black reporters 
let the mainstream newspapers and media send black reporters to interview them. So a lot of the black talent went to a mainstream press where they don't have any power. So the collapse of the black press was a tragedy. So these people like uh, Coates and others who are tokens um, are proxies for uh, institutions that are not run by blacks. So this is uh, Jeffrey Goldberg, who's the his boss. Jeffrey Goldberg said he doubted whether uh, blacks or women had the necessities to create a 15,000-word essay. I could do a 15,000 essay this morning. <laughs> so, 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 so the black opinion is under occupation. The trends are dictated by others. So while they're discussing reparations, uh, thousands of black people are dying uh, because of the virus, uh, because they have jobs where they're, you know, frontline workers uh, who will never get this reparations. And when a Amy Goodman asked him, where do we go from here on reparations? He said, well, I'm just a novelist. I don't know. So you got people talking about reparations, which who haven't done the, the math, haven't done the numbers. And uh, there are other issues that are more, uh, you know, pressing matters of life and death. You were a professor for part of your career, which means you've had a direct hand in shaping the trajectory of a new generation of writers and mm -hmm. thinkers and creators. Just before we go in the minute we have left, what's one lesson you hope your students have taken away from your teaching? Well, you know, a, a number of them have become excellent writers. I get, I get notices uh, frequently about how, matter of fact, the, uh, the, the feminist who's uh, running, who's uh, hail as a uh, the leader of the Israeli avant-garde was a former student of mine, and she, she talks about that. So I think uh, I would like to see uh, my students uh, write as much as possible, especially poetry, which is the most democratic of the arts, uh, writing arts. And I would like to from different points of view, a variety of points of view. Ishmael, I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Ishmael Reed is a poet, writer, and teacher. His 2018 play, The Haunting of Lin-Manuel Miranda, will be published as a book later this year. That is it for the show today. Tomorrow on the show, Haim are a family band. And at one point, they were a family band with mom and dad in the group, too. Mom and dad no longer no longer in the band. because I mean, that hardly ever works out, right? You hardly ever get mom and dad in the band and things get really big and you're, you know, you're playing the film more and stuff like that. But Haim have released, uh, in, in some ways, I mean, there's a lot of attention paid to like, what, what happened to rock music? Is rock music still around? Like, I really think that Haim have made the rock music record for 2020. So we're going to talk a little bit about the state of rock. We're going to talk a little bit about as, you know, touring hugely successful women musicians still going into guitar stores and being handed training guitars, which is, yeah, we're going to talk about that. And uh, we're going to talk about, at one point, a, a, a fortune teller who told one of the members of Haim that she was going to meet a Canadian string player, like a violinist. And I think I helped her out. All right. See you then. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.